Hello, cinefans. I'm Kendall Kruver, and this is Watching Classic Movies. There are few stars who have reached the heights that Joan Crawford did. In his book, Ferocious Ambition, Joan Crawford's March to Stardom, my guest Robert Dance explores how she rose from childhood poverty to the top of her industry, where she maintained a successful career for over four decades. We talked about her drive and talent for business and how she was a surprising feminist presence in mid-century cinema. Welcome, Robert. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. When I heard about this book, my first question, even though I can never get enough of Joan Crawford, is why write another book about Joan? Why write about Miss Crawford? Because it's there's been so much done about her. But I thought you had excellent reasons outlined for doing this in the introduction to your book. So why don't you share about that? No, it was an interesting genesis to the book because I didn't intend to write it. Uh, a couple of years ago, I finished a book on Garbo and I was was talking to um, the editors at Mississippi about new projects. And they said um, that they thought that they did best with lives. And I said somewhat jokingly, well, you're going to make me write a book now on Joan Crawford. And the publisher said, if you write a book on Joan Crawford, we'll publish it. And I thought, well, all right, that's throwing the gauntlet down. So I went back into the library and, and had a look through Crawford books that like you that I'd read in the past. And I, I, I'd, I'd remembered there weren't any very good ones. You know, there's excellent books on Garbo, even though I wrote a book on Garbo, you know, that, that have come before me. Um, except Crawford's books, the one she wrote herself, they were of a different time. And of course, they were, weren't candid in the way that, that uh, celebrities could be today. But they were serious and thoughtful. And then I read uh, Mommy Dearest, Christina Crawford's book. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to really tackle this subject, I need to make peace with the you know, grill in the room. Yeah. And I had read that when it had first come out, but not in your sense. And I thought Mommy Dearest was a remarkable book. I found myself largely believing everything Christina said, which doesn't mean that I believed every word that she wrote. but. You know, she wrote it from the point of view of a child survivor, and she believed what she wrote. And I think that that's part of what we have to understand in survival stories. And of course, this was maybe the first survival story ever written. You know, yeah. now it's industry. So it started out that that I didn't think there was a good book um, that really told the complete story. There's loads of books that talk about her films in terms of narrative. Um, we love Mommy Dear. I mean, you can go right through it, Grand Hotel. And, and that's an important way of writing a biography, uh, especially in film history. But I thought there's a lot more to it. This is a woman who had a career that was sustained for something like 45 years. Yeah, just remarkable. What was it about her that allowed this career to happen? Because everybody knows that unlike Garbo, you know, it took Crawford a long time to get started. And then what happened in those intervening 45 years that allowed this, this career to, to really propel forward, sometimes propel, you know, at the speed of sound. And so I knew quite a lot about her, but what I did is really went back and sort of did a business review of her right from the beginning. Because of course, in Hollywood, everything is about the business. You know, yes. she wouldn't have gotten her first start unless somebody thought that she was attractive and, you know, could make it in the movies. She wouldn't have had a contract renewed. She wouldn't have been cast. You know, everything is scrutinized in terms of money and still is. I mean, that hasn't mm -hmm. changed a bit. 
and that was an, the aspect of, of Crawford that I didn't think had been dealt with in the literature. She's been mocked a lot for her immaculate ways, but I've always kind of admired that because it does give her the grounding to be able to manage shifts in her life, manage the busyness of her life, period, and, and move on and do all these interesting things. You know, it's interesting you say that, uh, criticized for immaculate ways, because that's certainly true. You know, Crawford is an, a complete invention, because I'm not sure there was anybody there before she was given a name in the summer of 1925. She created a personality that wasn't hers. She developed a, a voice that was a new voice. She developed a way of moving that became, you know, glamour, um, a way of dressing, a way of dealing with people. And I think this hypercritical aspect of her that caused her to get on the floor and scrub, you know, corners was about control. You know, yeah. she wanted to make sure that she was in control of every aspect of her life. And it started with cleaning in a funny way. She thought, if I can, you know, be operating room clean, then the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, it's actually, it's a reaction to trauma, childhood it's trauma, where she's trauma. out of control. Right. She turns she it had into no control of her youth. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, okay, one of the things about your book that I have to mention is there are some amazing photos in there. And I know you have some, a lot of history working with photos, but the difference between the, the silent era photos and the talkies and also the earlier photos and then Harrell is huge. Yeah. I believe it is the talkies and Harrell that turned her into Joan, like yes. Joan Crawford. Yes. It's such a huge shift. And I never yes. really appreciated that until I had seen the progression you put in your book. So what was your process of gathering all these photos? Well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And one of the, you know, I, I spoke a minute ago that a motion picture career, especially one that, that has any length, is sustained because of business successes. If her films did not make money, she wouldn't have gone from one to the next. It took her about 20 films to become a star. So she was cast in such a wide variety of films. This is in the silent era. I mean, Joan Crawford made a couple of Westerns. You know, it's a little hard to believe <laughs> because the studio was trying to figure out a type. So one of the things that the studio did, particularly in those days, you know, this is, is photography is, is rather primitive compared to obviously the 21st century, is if you showed any success, you were photographed over and over in the portrait studio by these fantastic photographers. Clarence Bull, Ruth Harriet Louise were, were MGM's two best. And they photographed her beautifully in 25, 26, 27, but beautifully isn't enough in the movies. It worked for Garbo. I mean, the, the face of Garbo is revealed by Ruth Harriet Louise and it's seared into our minds. But the face of Crawford as revealed by Ruth Harriet Louise was just a step along the way. And then around 1930, MGM gave her the crack at stardom, you know, putting her in a movie. And being a star simply means your name is above the title. You're the one in, you know, virtually every frame of the film. And along with that, it was something of a coincidence that I think the three important things happened to Crawford at almost the same time. She began her association with George Harrell, the greatest of the Hollywood photographers, who, by the way, photographed Garbo dismally. So, you know, just because yeah. he was the best, he it didn't work with Garbo. She didn't connect with him, did she? She, she didn't he made her uncomfortable. Him. Yeah, yeah. But Crawford connected with him perfectly. And it was the moment where she um, was first uh, united with um, Adrian as a costume designer and with Clark Gable as a co-star. And 
Crawford had somehow willed herself from being an attractive young woman, she started when she was 19, into a spectacular beauty. How she did it, I think all of us would like to know. She changed her body. She became a streamlined clipper ship who could slip into those Adrian dresses, and she became the number one template for fashion of the 1930s. And if you look at the pictures, as you did of her three, four years before, you know, it's certainly the same person, but one, one wonders, how did she do it? But it, when she did it, it was like nothing else. It doesn't seem like the same person. Yeah. But like there's a spirit in there that remains. Yes, that's the thing. Just, Will to succeed. Yeah. There's this kind of melancholy. Like uh, there's a scene in Sally, Mary, and Irene. Am I getting that right? Where she looks yeah. in a broken mirror. Yeah. And, I, and I thought she doesn't even look like the same person. But then in, for a moment, I was like, but she is 50s melodrama Joan in that moment. Yeah. yeah. Silent film. She It's only the second or third film she made. Um, she had a few, you know, uh, bits before that, but it was was shot um, in the fall of 1925, the year she came. But there are glimmers of Crawford. I and mean, there's glimmers of Crawford all the way through. And what you're seeing is what her directors and producers saw. So then they would put her in the next film and they thought, you know, this woman has got something. It's not really, let's see how she works in Western. Let's see how she works with John Gilbert. Let's see how she works with Ramon Navarro. You know, it's constant testing. Yeah. And only because these films were relatively popular was she allowed to go forward. You know, many other actresses, I mean, thousands of other actresses came to Hollywood and, and didn't get a three month or six month contract renewed. They kept renewing her, you know, for a year at a time because they didn't want to take too much of a gamble because they thought, you know, maybe we can do something with her. And what they thought they could do with her, and I'm talking about 2829, is that she was going to be part of the second tier leading ladies, that she could do almost anything. And they yeah. could pay $500 a week and, you know, make movies that made money for the studio until you know, our dancing daughters came. And, and the vitality, which was just about to burst over under the surface, was allowed to burst over on the screen. And then they knew that they had a different kind of Joan Crawford, one that could be a star. But even then, they didn't know that they had a glamour girl. You know, they had yeah. the Fitzgerald flapper of the highest order. And two years later, they had the most glamorous clothes horse in romantic dramas the movie's ever seen. It's astounding. And it's, it's astounding. bizarre to think of Miss Crawford being second-tiered anything. Mm. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And if the interesting thing about that, you know, and I like the way you just said that, is because she was so grateful to be a leading lady, getting $500 a week, that, that she did everything they told her to do uncomplaining. So had that been where she ended up, I, I think, you know, she would have made peace with it because it was so far from where she ever thought she would get. Yeah. But the climb just continued and continued. And it didn't really stop till the day she died. She was always looking for something. Yeah. And she had the head. audience. And she had the audience. That's what's so remarkable. And yeah. I think about her career, like she um, doesn't really, ha I don't have a favorite phase, I guess is how I can put it. Like uh, my favorite Joan Blondell is pre-code Joan Blondell. Yeah. My favorite... Betty Davis is 40s Betty Davis, but yeah. there are key films that she's done in pretty much every decade that I love. I'll just keep thinking of something new 
I mean, because I'll think, oh, but maybe not the 50s. But then I'm like, oh, Johnny Guitar. You know what I mean? It's like that. I'm I'm right now in a complete Crawford in the 50s phase. Yeah. Um, I've been watching them and seeing, because she did something that, you know, so the book comes out. I start talking with folks like you. I I rewatch films. And I realized that, you know, in the 50s, Eisenhower America, post-World War, women are really pushed down. Now, in her films of the 20s and 30s, even, even in Mildred Pierce, there, there's a kind of brave new woman, you know, who's taking charge of herself. But 50s women, all of a sudden, were back in the housewife, in house wearing aprons, etc. And if you look at the stories of all of her films, they're slightly transgressive. You know, they're the middle-aged woman who is, say, 50, who really is 50 and Crawford is 50, having an affair with 25-year-old Cliff Robertson. Now, Crawford is doing what very few actresses would do, be older, you know, significantly older. But straight through the, well, Johnny Guitar is another example of it, of it you know, it's a Western, but it's this kind of a psychological Western, some say with strong lesbian undertones. You know, this was not the fair for 50s women, but film after film after film, she gave women something to look at and think about at a period which was really a low point in feminism. That, and I've never thought of this. Her, no, and this has come <laughs> to me after I finished the book. And then started watching, you know, things again and, and watching it, as you said, in, in, you know, decade by decade or period by period. And, you know, there's, there's still more to be revealed. Yeah. And, you know, one, I, I was asked as a question not long ago, you know, what was the, the biggest surprise that you got writing this book? And I thought for a second and I thought, you know, really the biggest surprise was that virtually every one of her films made money. There was yes. even even this, even those crazy 60s films all made money. And I thought, yeah, so in the transgressive 50s films, they were making enough money, and in some cases plenty, you know, so that she could do the next one. And Better the next keep doing one, this. <laughs> you know, and right. And that that she could choose the scripts. Yeah. And you know, she never becomes Donna Reed. She never becomes Jane Wyman. She always stays. Joan Crawford. And even she doesn't even become Betty Davis, who, you know, in some ways plays victim roles because they're, you know, there's wonderful victim roles. I'm not, you know. Oh, um, she's fantastic. Yeah. My first, my first movie love, actually. So, yeah. yeah. No, no. But when you, when you start watching the middle age uh, Crawford and Davis and compare them, you know, Crawford stays the head of the clipper sheet and Davis doesn't from film after film after film. And, you know, it's, how did she do it? Well, the reason she did it is because her films made money and she was allowed to go on to the next one. But yeah. but then she was shrewd enough in her scripts. So a lot of her sustaining her career is just this popularity. Yeah. Is it Joan drawing them in or were the projects she picked good? Was it somehow that she was discerning and picking projects? It's a blend. I wish yeah. I could say it was, but it's a blend. Yeah, And you know what I've also learned, um, um, you know, to answer that question I just proposed a second ago, the biggest surprises, um, really the biggest surprise is how popular she still is today. And I mentioned I'd done a book on Garbo a couple of years ago. Garbo is almost forgotten in the in popular culture today. 
Crawford is a behemoth. And if you, if you, I, I'm brand new to social media. I mean, brand new, but the, the press took out an Instagram account, which I look over the shoulder of. And I, I found out there's something like 200 Instagram sites devoted to Crawford. Oh, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And that, that everybody's heard of Crawford. And, and even the film Mommy Dearest, you know, that's 40 years ago, um, virtually nobody has seen the film, but they know certain things about it. But it's just something else that keeps Crawford present. Yeah, it's interesting how that film made people more interested in her. It, it didn't it. seem to damage the reputation as far as I could see. It's a little capsule of a determined woman. It kind of works anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's Frank Perry. He's great, but it's powerful enough. She was power popular enough that there's some sort of steam that pushed through it all. I mean, it really sabotaged uh, Faye Dunaway, you know, who I think is one of my favorite. She's a favorite actress, you know, but her career hardly ever recovered. And, and in death, Crawford has endured, you know, and continued. Yes. Yeah. So it's, there's a funny irony on, 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 I mean, Crawford would have liked nothing less than to have seen this movie be made. But in a way, it was one of the pieces that has kept the legend alive. And she certainly would have approved of her legend. Remaining it's so alive. funny. <laughs> and I, and Faye, I have heard interviews where Faye Dunaway says she regrets it and it ruined everything. And I really, yeah. I didn't know that until I heard her say that. Well, you know, one of the, the interesting things, again, so of course I watched um, Mommy Dears for the first time in, you know, what, 35 years. And what I realized, as I said a minute ago, when, when I read the book Mommy Dearest and was so taken by Christina Crawford's story is that it was written from a little girl, young woman's point of view of living in a really dysfunctional family. And it was the story as she remembered it. The movie is not done from the child's point of view. It's done from the crazy mother's point of view. Yeah. So it's no longer Christina's story. Make it's it absurd. Story, yeah. Just a completely mad woman in, you know. Yeah. Uh, the tornado and so the, the dynamic is, is changed but of course that was what Hollywood thought would sell in 1980. I like the John Waters take on it how he's just refuses to take it seriously but at the same time is like but if you were a woman a star and the, wouldn't you do this and that you know talking about her beauty regime and all that I think you yeah. have to see it that way. But, oh actors still do effect. you know and, and, yeah. and, and, and um, men and women you know, your your face is your fortune. Yeah. And uh, Crawford was was different from other 20s and 30s star because she spoke candidly to the press. So, you know, nobody was going to ask Garbo or Shearer, what do you do to stay beautiful? If they yeah. would question and Crawford would say, well, come sit next to me and I'll tell you. Yeah, it was you that know? one of us, but I'm really not like you at the same time. It's really interesting. Yes. Yeah, she, just, she, she had that that sense of, you know, sit next to me and I'll tell you what I do and, and tell the truth. Yeah. And, you know, there's always a sense that, that I think she gave her fans, particularly, you know, women, is that if you drop a few pounds and spend a few more on your dresses, you can look like me. Because yeah. after all, I did it. Yeah. And, and, and I think in a funny way, Crawford sort of believed that, too. You know, that, 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 and that's where there was a, an aspect of genuine. I mean, this is the woman who answered every fan letter, sent tens of thousands of pictures with signatures, 
Um, she would remain in correspondence with strangers for years. She would remember their birthdays. So, so this was not, you know, she, she understood who made her a star. And, and, and she always, you know, the, the woman, the young woman from Kansas, the girl from Kansas City who, who grew up in an abusive home was never far from the surface. Yeah. It, it feels a little bit like she kind of stage managed it herself let a, and not having a studio do it for her. And I, I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of actresses have a, a director with whom they're associated, you know, Betty Davis and William Wyler, Dietrich and Von Sternberg, but... I see her, you mentioned it, her main collaborations as being with Clark Gable and Adrian. So the designer and, and you, you, and Harrell. No, you're right. Yeah. So I'm not really seeing the director. I mean, there are certainly directors she worked well with, but there's not one that stands out the way those other collaborations do. No, in her case, the uh, important uh, fourth person is Harry Raff, the man who um, brought her to MGM. He was an MGM producer, Harry Raff. And when Thalberg was um, um, promoting Garbo and Shearer, when William Randolph Hearst, Marion Davies, Raff was promoting Crawford's career and casting her in lower budget films, because of course, Shearer and Davies and Garbo got the expensive pictures. And it was the best thing that ever happened to Crawford, because it gave her a chance to really go through the paces and learn how to act. So by having a producer who could put her into four or five films a year that were inexpensive films. You know, it was a real opportunity. He put her with very good directors. And as I said, it was everything from romances with John Gilbert to Westerns with, with Lou Cody. You know, as Crawford herself said, and I wouldn't have missed one of those experiences because every bit of it taught me how to work in front of a camera. Yeah, she completely understood the machinery of it all. She's not a director's actress. You're right, you know. She is a producer's actress and, and a co-star's actress and a photographer, you know. I, I think that that um, I hadn't quite thought of this before, and if I had, I might have written about it, but that she saw herself as being directed by the camera, not by the director. The cinematographer might have been more important to her than the director. I because she that. understood it, you know, where she would be, how she was lighted, you know, what the background would be. And that she was always completely on top of this and she was good at it that that the cinematographers were happy to talk to her well you write about her on the grand hotel set her interest in others on the set and how films are made yeah i I feel like she is an actress and meant to be an actress with you know that little bit of producing in there do you think she could have directed do you think she had the eye for it i'm not sure she had the uh the aesthetic for it you know and that is something that's very she, she certainly had the discipline and mm-hmm. she certainly had the knowledge. But, you know, somebody can be the greatest English professor at Stanford and not be able to write a work of fiction. That makes sense. You know, so just because you have great command of language, great, you know. So no, I've never seen a, a sense of imagination in her. That, uh, yes. Is, 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 would be necessary um, to, to move into directing. So she did what she had to do. Which is amazing. I mean, I, I, I talk to so many people who write about these stars that they don't reach their full potential. There's always something a little sad about it, but she yeah. did it. And she's one of the very few handful of stars that that did it compl- to its completion. She reached her potential. You know, if you want to gauge it on popularity, awards, doing interesting projects, she did it all. And I find that really yeah. interesting. Do you have films 
that you regard as essential, you know, given that? Well, I think some of the ones we we, we hit upon, um, Grand Hotel is the film that proves that she is a star of the first rank. Yeah. You know, and, and the, an early scene of, of Crawford and John Barrymore is a lesson in, in, in filmmaking, you know, where they meet on the, and they do a little ballet and a flirtatious ballet. And it is, it is just so superb, you know, and then Sadie McKee is one of my go-to films from the middle 30s. Of course, The Women is um, a classic. And then right, you know, soon after that, she left MGM, went to Warner Brothers. Actually, you know, the legend has always been that she was dropped by MGM and had to go crawling over to Warner Brothers for less money. She decided to leave MGM and she got a big raise when she went to Warner Brothers. And, you know, it took her two years to find Mildred Pierce. But then, you know, after that, it was possessed, you know, humoresque. Um, these were just one winner after the next, Daisy Kenyon. And at some point, she didn't like the script, so she left Warner Brothers again. She made the decision just after she had signed a contract and went into something sort of like independent production, bought the script for Sudden Fear, which I think is her greatest film of all. Fantastic. Um, you know, and then got one or two picture deals with studios through the 50s. And then there was Baby Jane, which completely renewed her finances because she made a fortune doing Baby Jane. And then I think she was a little at sea, you know, and, and there isn't a good film after Baby Jane, but they're all interesting. I'd like to see them. Like, yeah, I can't argue that they're I mean, Berserk, great. Dog, I Saw What You Did, Straight Jacket. I mean, you know, these are, a, um, you know, a, a, a late night, you know, bunch of movies. But in every one, she, she is serious. You know, and then she does some very interesting television, including, you know, Steven Spielberg's directing Night Gallery. She did an episode of Night Gallery, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, and this must have been very late 60s, 1970. Spielberg is just out of film school, and she's just superb, you know, in this television drama. So I can't believe I haven't seen that yet. I need to look a little more at her, at her television work. I, I've noticed yeah. that there's episodes on YouTube to go yeah, through. And, so and Night Gallery is not that hard to find. It's out on DVD. She did a, a made-for-television movie called Della, which where she's terrific. It was a pilot for a TV show that didn't get picked up, but then it was released. It was two parts as, as a film, you know, in the mid-60s. Um, I mean, she was in all sorts of television. I think she was in an episode of The Virginian, a Lucy show. She was a guest of... of oh, Lucy yeah, that's, I like that one. That yeah. was a, a problematic. And the other thing, you know, which we, we you know, her the late part of her career... Her work is still good, but she had a problem with alcohol. And had she not, there might have been more interesting projects. She could pull it off still, but yeah, it wasn't the same. You could see how she couldn't maintain it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I Wait, like that I episode, but I know the stories behind it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's um, Lucy wanted to fire her yeah. um, because she was drinking and difficult. And in those days, you know, film uh, TV shows were filmed in a week. And if they didn't film on Friday, they would not have a, a show to go on the following Tuesday or whatever night Lucy was on. So uh, Lucille Ball was out of her mind. And then Friday they came to shoot and Crawford was perfect. And that's the story of Joan Crawford. She can, you know, through the whole week, but it was filmed in front of a live audience. And once, you know, the, the first applause came, she was right there. 
And if you watch that episode of Lucy, there's no sense that there's anything off. She got her oxygen. It was her audience. She got her oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just looking at this book as a whole, which I really enjoyed, you know, just oh, the, the combination it. of what you explore and the photos is really quite powerful. I mean, what 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 are you hoping people will have as a takeaway from this book? Because it is a different take. Well, I hope that that that, that the real takeaway is one um, that she had the richness of this full career, that it's not just the mommy dearest era, or maybe I've seen Mildred Pierce, you know, on Turner Classic Movies. To, to explore a little more deeply. As I said, that the 50s films um, still look good today and they still feel pretty contemporary. So it's, it's, it's a story I think that needed to be told to those of us interested in classic Hollywood because it's a story that's exactly as up to the minute today that if a young person wants to be a musician, a Broadway actor, a movie star, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And, and you know, you need to, to learn your craft. You need to learn how to work into the system. You need to be in a position where you're getting paid in order so that you can live and that, that the person who has hired you wants to hire you again. You know, it really is a story for today. You know, not, none of it has, has changed. And it's not typically the way film history has been written, because it's usually written from the, the star twinkling in the sky point of view, mm -hmm. not from what was happening on the ground. And we know about Crawford twinkling in the sky. You know, that story has been told plenty of times. But yeah. I wanted to trace the story of how she did it and how she sustained it. I love that. I, I do think that it is so modern. I hadn't thought about it, but it is a very good template for any sort of pursuit, you know, if you're looking for success. Yeah. Well, I loved talking to you about Miss Crawford. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming well, on today, you. Robert. It was an awful lot of fun for me, too. For more information about Robert Dance, including how to purchase Ferocious Ambition, Joan Crawford's March to Stardom, go to watchingclassicmovies.com. Hello to my new listeners. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review wherever you listen. I appreciate your support. This is Kendall Kruver, watching classic movies. Until next time.